Good morning, good morning. Hey, my name is uh, Ed Griffin Hagen. I am one of the pastors on our staff at Church on the Trail. I want to welcome y'all watching on Facebook Live or whether you're watching on YouTube, whatever it is, we're thankful that you are joining us this morning. I want to tell you that if this is your first time uh, with us, I want you to uh, maybe at the end of the worship experience, if you'd go to our website, let us know you are here. You go to churchonthetrail.org and just click on the connect with us and you can fill out a little little online digital connection card and we'd love for you to do that. I want to tell you something else too. We, we went back to online only today uh, because of just a little bit of a scare that we had last week and I, and I uh, went online, did a Facebook Live video uh, kind of explaining that on Thursday or Friday. I want you to know that Susan and I both tested negative, so that's a huge Praise the Lord, and we look forward to getting back together. Um, again, I want to welcome you here. We uh, are jumping back into Paul's letter to the church uh, in Rome. And we, we took a week off of that last week to celebrate Independence Day, and we're jumping back into that now. Unashamed is the name of this series, this first kind of section series uh, in Romans. Last time that we were in there, we were at the beginning of Romans chapter 2, and y'all, we talked about the moralist, the moralist. And if you remember, the moralist is the guy that lives a moral and a clean life, and he looks uh, squeaky clean, but he also uh, judges other folks all the time because they, they don't live the way that he thinks that they ought to live. The moralist thinks that he's safe and that he's secure, but there's a huge problem, and that problem is that it's false. His security is false. It's not real. It's not based on, on any fact. It's not based on reality. Today, we're going to be in the middle of chapter 2 of Romans, starting in verse, uh, in verse 17. Now, this section uh, in Romans chapter 2, it, does not, uh, it doesn't stand alone. It's part of a larger section that begins in verse 18, of chapter 1, and it runs all the way through chapter 3 and verse 20. Matter of fact, I want you to grab a pen, a piece of paper, or something. I want you to write this down. I want to give you a little, a quick little, like really quick little outline of Romans, of the Paul's letter to the Roman church, and you can, uh, can kind of track as we walk through this how his, uh, how his thoughts worked. So this first section, 118 through 320, tells us our need for salvation. And then starting in, in uh, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 21, going through uh, chapter 4, verse 25, through the end of chapter 4, it's the provision that is made for salvation. So you have the first section, the need for salvation, then the provision for salvation, and then chapter 5 through chapter 8, through the end of chapter 8, is the result of salvation. And then chapters 9 through, uh, through the end of 11 is the scope of salvation. And then chapter 12 through to the end is, is, is Paul's talking about the transformed life, the life that has been shaped by the salvation that is offered through Christ. So you have the need for salvation, the provision uh, of salvation, the result of salvation, the scope of salvation, and then you have the, the transformed life uh, that is offered to us freely through the salvation that's offered through Christ. Now this first section... Uh, that we're in, going to be in today, uh, chapter 2, verse 17, all the way through the end of uh, 321, it points out that all of us are sinners. 
and that we all stand before God with nothing. We're in desperate need uh, of salvation. We're in desperate need, and, and we have no means of security of safety ourselves. In chapter 1, if you backed up several weeks ago when we were in chapter 1, chapter 1, Paul, remember this is, Romans is almost like a courtroom setting. And in chapter 1, uh, Paul makes a case against the ungodliness and the wickedness of men. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, he makes a case against the moralist. And today, Paul is going to make a case against the religionist, the religionist and his, quote, religion. And I must say that a religionist is somebody who's all wrapped up in their religion. They're all wrapped up in ceremony and in tradition and in ritual and even in their heritage. All of that is packed into their, quote, religion. They wholeheartedly profess religion. And so in this section of chapter 2, y'all, Paul is talking about Jews. And it was because of the Jews' extreme interest there, um, their almost obsession really, with religion that they were and maybe still are uh, looked on as the end-all, be-all of religionists. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 12 says this, These are those who are clean in their own eyes but are not washed of their filth. So let's see what we got here. We got four big points. I want to go through four big points. Number one is this. The religionist professes his religion. He professes his religion. So let's look at this first part of today's passage in verse 17. The text says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, that you're a light to those who are in darkness, that you're an instructor of the foolish, Paul says, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So y'all, the, the religionist thinks that if he shows, uh, that he shows enough interest in his religion, he thinks that, that by doing that, he has made himself secure, he's made himself safe, he's made himself approved by God. But he's standing on very, very shaky ground. The religionist relies on the law. That is, he relies on the word of God. He relies on the scripture in his mind, but he does not live it out. He boasts about God. He believes in God and he feels safe and secure, y'all, in that belief. But on some level, God is not interested in our profession, just our profession. He's interested in our life. He's interested in a man's life. He wants men to live for him and not just to talk about him, not just to talk about him. The religionist, verse 18 tells us, the religionist knows God's will. He knows what God wants done. He knows right from wrong. He knows God's will, but he doesn't do it. He knows it intellectually, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't live it. And maybe even subconsciously, he's suppressing it and doesn't even realize that that's what he's doing. Verse 18 says the religionist is taught the word. The text says he's instructed by the word. The problem, again, is what he does or what he doesn't do with it. God expects of me and you to learn his word, of course, of course, to learn it but then to live it out. Well, the religionist doesn't live it out. He is sure that he is a guide to the blind. He is sure that he's a light 
to folks that are in the dark, verse 19 says. He's sure that he is an instructor of the foolish in verse 20. He's sure of it, y'all. He is, he is convinced that by being, quote, religious, that he's got it all going on, that he's an example for men that he's a guide to lead men to the Lord and that he can cure the fool of the fool's foolishness. But what the, religion, the, the, what the religionist does is he leads people to religion, not to Christ. Religion is not the light of the world. Y'all, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And I'm telling you, man, there are a lot of guides. There's a lot of instructors in the world today that are leading people down the wrong road. They're blind, they're blind, and they're like the blind leading the blind. So number one, the religionist professes religion. And then number two, the and very tied to that, the religionist fails to live out what he professes. He fails to live what he professes. He's a hypocrite at the end of the day. He talks a lot but he ain't walking that talk. His walk and his talk, they don't jive. And so Paul, in this next section, he gives us sort of four or five rhetorical questions. He asks this, starting in verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, and this is a quote from Isaiah, he says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So Paul suggests here that anybody that is welled up uh, with pride, welled up with pride about their spirituality or about their spiritual background, they need to take a careful look in the mirror. The Jews were absolutely called to be a guide of the Gentiles all the way back to Abraham. And then in, in John chapter 4 and verse 22, it says that salvation is of the Jews, but their response to God's plan for them had ultimately over the years made them arrogant. The religionist has a death grip on the law, a death grip on the word. And they were sold out, they were for sure, absolutely confident, the religionist, in his status, and that that status allowed him to teach those ignorant folks who were without the law. He was sure of that. However, Paul's questions here in this little section were really designed to force the religionist to conclude on his own that his confidence was false and that he, in fact, never ever applied the word to his life, knew it like the back of his hand, but never applied it to his life. It never made its way from his head to his heart. Having and knowing and reading and reciting the, the, the word and the laws is just not enough. The law says not to steal, but some of them were stealing. The law says not to commit adultery, but some of them were committing adultery. The law says to abhor, to hate, to detest idols. And Paul asked, do you rob temples? Now that one is a little difficult to understand. It sounds weird, right? Well, let me give you some context. What they were doing was they were robbing pagan temples. They were robbing the pagan temples of the idols. 
that were in there. And those idols were made of, typically made of silver and made of gold. They were robbing those gold and those silver idols for their own financial gain. That's what Paul's talking about. And so the Jews need to teach themselves first what the word really means before they start focusing in on anybody else. They knew the technicalities of the law. They could recite and recite and recite. And so they knew all of the nuances and the technicalities of the law. And in fact, they knew it so well and they had learned and taught themselves how to rationalize their own behavior and at the same time criticize the next guy. You know anybody like that? That's what people do, man. We, we rationalize our behavior by saying we technically we didn't do this or that. But the law, y'all, the law is not some legalistic list of minimum requirements. Y'all, this book is not some legalistic list of minimum requirements. It's a guideline. It's a guideline to, to help us to live according to God's will. And then it's a reminder, it's a potent reminder that we can't please God without being in a relationship with him. I mean, Jesus points out that, that even withholding what is rightfully uh, someone else's property is stealing. Looking on another person with lustful intent, adulterous intent, that in and of itself is adultery. So we better take a gut check before we start checking out the other guy. We better check on the sin in our own life first. Now, verse 24 is really the result in our world of the religionist words and actions. And it's super tragic. Look at verse 24. The name of God is blasphemed. The name of God is cussed. The name of God is spat on, that's what this says, among the Gentiles, among the lost world, because of you. That's an indictment. It's an indictment, and Paul's quoting Isaiah 52 here. And so I'm telling y'all, if you claim to know Christ, if you claim to be in a relationship with the Lord, and then you go out and you live a sinful, wicked life, if you say that you've learned the truth about God and you teach the truth about God and then you live like an idiot, you are just blaspheming God all over the place. How much damage, y'all, how much damage is done by the Bible-thumping fool who has a Bible in his back pocket and a white hood on his head? How much damage Damage is done to the kingdom. How much damage is done to God's name by the Bible-thumping fool who has a Bible in his back pocket and he's spewing out racial hatred all over the place. How much, You think it's just damaging him, but it's totally damaging the God who he claims to be in a relationship with. Dude, you cannot love God and hate people. You cannot do it. You cannot love God and act like a fool and spew hatred all over the place. It cannot be done. It cannot be done. You, you know, how much damage is done by the Bible-thumping fool with a Bible in his back pocket that says, you can't be a Christian and vote for so-and-so. No, 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 no. You can't be a Christian and vote for so-and-so. Last time I checked, there ain't nothing in here that says you got to vote Republican or you got to vote Democrat or you got to vote Libertarian to be a Christian. 
It's absurd, y'all. It's absurd. And it damages God's name. It damages your witness. It damages the cross. If me and you, if we claim to be a member of God's household, our life ought to reflect what God is like. And when we don't live up to the claim, the spiritual claim to be in a relationship with the Lord, we dishonor his name, we discourage other believers. Worst of all, we give a reason for people to speak evil against the God that we profess to be in a relationship with. It's a reason for people to run away from Jesus. Y'all, they look at us, if we act like that, they say, if that's what it's all about, I don't want to have nothing to do with it. Authentic confidence in the Lord ought to create humility, not arrogance. Knowing God means that we ought to begin at least to have a, a right view of ourself, to put ourselves uh, in the right perspective. And I'm telling you, the world is so sickened of false spirituality, sickened of false of false claims to be in a relationship with the Lord. But I can tell you this too. I think that the world will, will does and will respond super positively to an example of just genuine, authentic faith in Christ. So number two is the religionist uh, uh, fails to live out what he professes. And then number three, the religionist believes that a ritual, in this case circumcision, is the way that, that to secure God's approval. This starts in verse 25. And this is a weird little section, so just kind of listen closely. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, meaning the spirit of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Y'all, circumcision was a fundamental thing to the Jews and still is. It symbolized the covenant between God and Abraham and then Abraham's descendants. It was an expression of Israel's uh, national sort of uh, identity, their heritage. It was a requirement and still is for all Jewish men. It was a physical reminder, symbolically, it was a physical reminder of that heritage, of that covenantal relationship that they have with the Lord. Now, lots of them were very confident that that's what sealed their position with the Lord. Look, that's the way I grew up. I, I had a bris, that's what it's called in Hebrew, a brit milah, that's the ritual, that's the ritual circumcision, although it just wasn't ritual, it was the real deal, when I was eight days old. And I grew up believing and being told that that is what put me into the covenant community of God, that it was that physical act is what did it. But just like having the law doesn't and didn't make a person right before God, neither is circumcision in itself a reason for confidence, a reason to feel secure. To be circumcised was only, verse 25 says, only worthwhile if God's word was followed. To be circumcised and yet break God's law was no better than just being uncircumcised at all. What God desires is pure and obedience and a changed heart, a 
changed heart. And y'all look, this is not a new, just a New Testament thing. The absurdity of substituting the symbol, in this case circumcision, for the reality that it represents, which is a relationship with God. So the absurdity of substituting the symbol for the reality, it was clear even in the Old Testament. Moses, he knew that obedience was much more than, than just submitting to the ceremonial law. Look what he wrote in, in Deuteronomy chapter 10. He says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart. So some external tradition, some ceremony, some ritual, it just doesn't cut it. That was a poor choice of words. It, it just doesn't get it. It just doesn't get it. Y'all, if you take this passage and you take the word circumcision and you substitute in there uh, whatever ritual some church or some pastor told you was essential, the meaning of this passage can, can even become more clear. So look at it. I'm going to put baptism in there. because That's a lot more of a New Testament sort of example. And this is the way it would read. For baptism indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your baptism becomes unbaptism. So if a man who is unbaptized keeps the precepts of the law, the spirit of the law, will not his unbaptism be regarded as baptism? Y'all, if a religionist doesn't keep God's word, then the ritual and the ceremony is meaningless. It doesn't matter what it is. He becomes unbaptized. He becomes uncircumcised. Uh, uncircumcised. He becomes unchurched. He becomes unwhatevered. Substituting the symbol for the reality that it represents is like deliberately writing checks on a bank account with no money in it. The problem really isn't with the ease in which the checks are written. The problem really isn't in the, the, the existence of the bank accounts. The problem is the deceitfulness of the human heart. The, deceitful, uh, the deceitfulness of the human heart that's willing to be false rather than to admit its desperate need. So the Jews substituted keeping the ceremonial laws for real heart-driven obedience. Christians right now are just as guilty when we treat baptism or the Lord's Supper or joining some church like those things somehow make us right with God. Professing one lifestyle, but living another. Making a promise, but not fulfilling it. Claiming a symbol like baptism, but violating its meaning. Man, that's a problem. It's a problem. And when I hear people's testimony, and, and you hear them say, well, I was baptized when I was 12 years old. Well, tell me about, tell me about the change in life. Well, I was baptized when I was 25 years old. Well, tell me about the change in life. Well, it's all about the baptism. It's not about all about the baptism. Baptism is an outward expression of what? Baptism is an outward expression of an inner change, a change of heart, a heart that's been transformed by Christ. Y'all, it reminds me of the boxer that goes into the ring. And when he walks into the ring, he does this, and he crosses his, he makes that little symbol. And a guy says, does it help? And the other guy says, it does if you can punch. If you can't punch, it don't make any difference. So it's nice to think that God's got your back, but it helps if you can punch. Dude, we're not acceptable somehow before God because we've been baptized or because we've taken communion 
or because we've joined a church or because we've made some symbol across our chest. We're not. We're made acceptable to God because his son made us acceptable. His son died and offered us a way to be acceptable. And the basic commandment, his basic commandment is clear. Look at 1 John in chapter 3. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another, just as he has commanded us. So number three, the religionist believes that a ritual is the way to secure God's approval. And number four, lastly, number four, and this is sort of the conclusion that Paul comes up with here, Number four is that the religionist misses the whole point. A true religionist, if we got to use that word religionist, is a man who is righteous inwardly. Righteous inwardly. Look at verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And man, Paul is adamant here, adamant, that the circumcision that God is looking for and has always been looking for, always been looking for, when, when, when uh, the Lord made the covenant with Abraham and the sign of the covenant was the circumcision, it was not about the circumcision. It was about the heart all the way back then, 1,800 years before Christ. And so he's always been looking for the heart change, not the cutting of the flesh. The cutting of the flesh surely does not fulfill the law. And Paul's not inventing some new theology here, but he's pushing us and he's pushing his readers from the, uh, back then to re-examine kind of what the Old Testament says, kind of what the entirety of Scripture says. God has always, always wanted inward circumcision, the circumcision of the heart. And that is something that only the Holy Spirit can accomplish. Look at Jeremiah, 800 years or so before Christ. Jeremiah in chapter 4 says, For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your, what? Of your hearts. So the religionist really does miss the whole point. That righteousness is inward and not outward. And that fact is so critical that all of us need to wake up and kind of do something about it. The point is that every man that has ever lived breaks the law. Paul said in verse 25, if you break the law, your circumcision or your baptism or your church membership or you're taking the communion, whatever it is, if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And Paul's fixing to say in, verse, uh, in chapter 3, he's fixing to say, None is righteous, no, not one. And he's getting ready to say a little later in chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So no law, no ritual, circumcision, baptism, or any other ritual is able to make us acceptable to a holy God. Being acceptable to God is just not an outward thing. It's not the keeping of any ritual or, or any ceremony or any tradition, it's not a nationality, it doesn't come via any heritage, it's not being born of some particular race or some particular family line. True religion, truly being acceptable to God is inward. It's of the heart, it's of the spirit. 
It's of God. It's being born again of God's spirit. And it is not of man. The Apostle John said in John chapter 1, But to all who did receive him, him being Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of God. So his true people are the people who have been circumcised spiritually in the heart. The real Jews, God's true people, are those who have had the foreskin of sin cut out of their heart. They're the people who have been spiritually cleansed and converted. Paul wrote it in Colossians chapter 2, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, the operation of Christ, the, the cutting of Christ, the surgery of Christ working on your inside. 1,500 years before this, even Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 30, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. And when your heart gets circumcised, Moses wrote, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live, y'all, that you may live. This is about eternal life. Y'all, look at this. What do you think this is? It's a tree. There's a shocker. It's a tree. This tree is called the tree of Hippocrates. Hippocrates. It's on one of the Greek islands in the southeastern area of the Aegean Sea. And in that area, in a place called Kaz, if I pronounce that right, you're going to find the home of Hippocrates. You know who Hippocrates was? He was the, known as the, mod, the father of modern medicine. And in that area, you're going to find this tree this huge olive tree, supposedly dating back from his, to, to his time. And if it in fact does date all the way back to Hippocrates, we're talking about this tree is 2,400, about 2,400 years old. The trunk of this tree is massive. It's huge, but it's hollow. Really, the trunk is really just bark, thick bark. And there's a few longer, uh, kind of straggly sort of branches, but they're supported with poles every few feet because they're hollow. This tree hadn't produced any fruit in a long, long time. Virtually no olives in a long, long time. In the fields around, however, there's olive groves in many directions around this area. Strong, healthy, young trees with narrow trunks that are covered in super thick canopies of leaves and they're producing massive amounts of olives every year. Super healthy olive trees producing fruit. Now the tree of Hippocrates, it can still be called an olive by nature in that it still shows kind of the essential unique characteristics of an olive tree, but it has long since ceased to fulfill the function of an olive tree, which is what? To produce fruit, to produce olives. Tons of olives, tons of fruit. That's the function of an olive tree. And tourists line up all the time to take a look at this ancient relic because it has some link going back to this dim history. But the job of this olive tree has long ago passed to many uh, succession 
of replanted trees because this tree is not producing fruit anymore. It's not reproducing. Do you know any churches like that? I hate to say, do you know any people like that? Like the tree of Hippocrates. The form seems to be there. Seems to look like it looks right. But the function is not. They've stopped producing fruit. They've stopped reproducing. Maybe they think their fruit is in their heritage. It's not. No, maybe not their heritage. Maybe they think their fruit is in the ceremonies. No, maybe they think the fruit is in the ritual. That's not. Maybe they think the fruit is in the ceremony or, or, the, or the traditions. Or you know what? Maybe they feel like the, the, the fruit is in their knowledge of their holy book. But in reality, y'all, they're like hollow, basically useless trees. Just kind of proud of their noble history. Y'all, that's not fruit. That is not fruit. The fruit of a transformed life is service. The truth, uh, excuse me, the fruit of a transformed life is a knowledge of the truth and then applying that truth to our walk. The fruit of a transformed life is being in the streets serving your fellow man. The fruit of a transformed life is sharing the gospel with people that you're in relationship with. The fruit of a transformed life is, is reproducing yourself. It is love at the end of the day. The fruit of a, of a transformed life is serving in your local church, serving in a kid's area, serving in a nursery, serving in one of many ministries that churches all over the planet have. It's fruit. Paul would say there is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. Now, at first, it may be little bitty raisins. But six months later, a year later, it may be big old watermelons. I don't know. But, th but there has to be fruit. The fruit is the walk that matches up with that talk. You know, that tree, the lifeblood that is flowing through, the, through, a, through a healthy tree is the blood of Christ. Look at John chapter 15. The, the, the life that is pumping through the vine, the life that is pumping through a tree that bears fruit is Jesus Christ. If you want to plug in to that life, the promise is there. And it is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so I would ask you, if today is the day that you want to plug into that life, plug into the blood of Christ, plug into that lifeline, let today be the day that you repent that you repent and that you believe that he died on the cross to take care of your sin. Remember this section in, in Romans is about our need and you got to be real with yourself. You got to be real with yourself and say, I do need you, Lord. So it's a simple thing, man. I repent of my sins and I believe on the name of Jesus Christ that he died on a cross to save me, to rescue me, to redeem me, to reconcile me. Let today be the day that you do that. Lord, we love you today. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. Lord, we thank you for the life. The text says that we may live. We thank you for the life that you provide us. Lord, my prayer is that folks heard your word today.
they worshiped your name and they got on their knees and they accepted you as their personal savior. And Lord, my prayer is that they would plug into a local body of believers somewhere on the planet and they would lock arms with other believers and they would serve and they would be your witnesses in a desperately lost and dying world. Father, we love you. It is in your son Jesus Christ's name, amen.